Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Centering on Coronavirus podcast from the News Center. Each week, we'll be bringing you insights and analysis of how COVID-19 is progressing, how it's impacting our health system, economy, and workers, and the extraordinary human, policy, and technological resources being mobilized to fight it. Since its inception, telehealth has remained a supplement to traditional doctor visits. But with COVID-19 greatly complicating everyday things like visiting the doctor, the true potential of telehealth is quickly being realized. According to an April 2020 Morning Console poll, 23% of Americans have already utilized telehealth services since the outbreak of coronavirus. And with facilities and providers focused on fighting COVID-19, telehealth has also shown the potential to help relieve overburdened healthcare systems. But will these changes remain once COVID-19 ceases to be a public health threat? Today, New Center Policy Analyst Olive Morris checks in with Mei Kwong of the Center for Connected Health Policy to find out. Here's Olive. Can you introduce yourself and your organization? Sure. My name is Mei Kwong. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Connected Health Policy, which is the federally designated National Telehealth Policy Resource Center. Okay, perfect. Telehealth has sort of a long history. It's been around in some capacity for decades. Yet it wasn't necessarily widespread until recently, and it may be a new concept for some of our listeners. Can you just tell us exactly what telehealth is and the different forms that it may take? Sure, so telehealth is really using technology to provide some sort of healthcare service where the patient and the doctor or whatever healthcare provider you may be engaging with aren't in the same location. So you're just using technology to connect with each other and you're just not there in person with each other. Um, It has different types of forms in which it can use technology and deliver that service. The most common one and probably the most that people are familiar with is called live video, which is exactly what it sounds like, you know, real time live video interaction between the two parties. Then there are other modalities is what we call them, other ways of delivering the services. One is a not in real time service that's called store and forward, which again is kind of self-explanatory. You store some type of information and you forward it to the provider who is not looking at it like right when it comes in, but maybe at a later time. So for example, you know, you, you see a doctor, your primary care doctor, and you have like a skin condition and they're not quite sure what it is and they take a picture of it and they send it over a secure system to a dermatologist. The dermatologist isn't looking at it right when that email comes in or that message comes in, but maybe looking at it at a later time. So then the dermatologist looks at it and sends their recommendation, diagnosis, whatever, back to the primary care doctor. So you're storing and forwarding some information. And then sort of the other way of delivering care is something called remote patient um, monitoring. So that's the continuous monitoring of a patient, and it can be in real time and not in real time. So a real-time example is, you know, for example, if you're in an ICU unit, your intensivist, the doctor there, the ICU doctor, may not be, like, right at that location with the patient at that time, but maybe is monitoring from, like, a different location, but they are doing it in real time. And they're communicating back and forth with healthcare personnel who are there on location with the patient and doing what needs to be done physically. Um, and then a non-real-time example of remote patient monitoring is think of somebody who maybe has a chronic condition such as high blood pressure, 
your doctor wants to know what your readings are for a period of time to see if maybe medication's working out for you or if you're you know, experiencing any type of issues. So you're at home, you're taking readings, and you're sending them to your your provider. Um, maybe you're doing it like once a day or you're sending all the readings at the end of the week. Again, the provider probably isn't looking at them as those, those readings are coming in, but maybe looking at them at a later time. So a non-real-time example of like a continuous monitoring. Okay, so, um, and then what types of modalities do you feel are most commonly being used in telehealth right now? So live video is definitely the most popular one. Um, it's, it's the one that probably most people are familiar with. It's the one that when you're talking about people or payers such as Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial payers, what they cover. If they cover any services delivered by telehealth, that's usually the modality that they cover. So the other two you know, while effective for some things are sort of like not as widespread in coverage as like live video is. Right. Gotcha. Um, so as someone who's sort of been working in the state and federal policy field for your entire career, I'm curious if you can sort of paint us an overarching picture of the trend that you saw in telehealth adoption for the past few years before coronavirus, and then maybe talk about how that pace has sort of been accelerated by this pandemic. Yeah, so before coronavirus, it really wasn't until like the last, so I've been doing telehealth policy for about 10 years. So I would say it wasn't really until the last five years where you saw telehealth sort of like really pick up. And and that's for a variety of reasons. And you know, one of it is, as you mentioned, telehealth has been around for decades, but it hasn't really been you know, pre-COVID, it wasn't really, you know, ubiquitous throughout the, the, the health system or throughout the country. And part of that was, it was around for decades, but the technology was not there to, like, do what people could imagine it could do. So it, it was only kind of more recently that the technology kind of caught up with it. Um, so that was one reason why, you know, telehealth wasn't as widespread pre-COVID. Um, another reason is is that while the technology, you know, finally caught up what it could do, the policies in place didn't really catch up with it. So it, in general, technology evolves much more quickly than policy. So you have your policy probably trending about 10 years behind of what the technology could do. So you still had like these old limitations of like, oh, you can only use telehealth to do X and get paid for it. Well, if you don't have those policies in place and whether you allow somebody to use telehealth to do something or that, you know, a provider will get paid for it, they're not going to use it a lot. So you have like sort of like low usage. The last five years, the policy has been slowly, incrementally getting better. And that's both on the state and a little bit on the federal level. Federal has been a little bit slower than what the states have been doing. So this is kind of your landscape like pre-COVID, it's like it was getting better, but it was still going like at, I would say, you know, a slow and steady rate. COVID-19 rolls around and it just suddenly explodes. I, I liken it to telehealth is kind of like that unknown actor who suddenly has been cast to be the star of a new Marvel franchise. Mm. It's like, you know, <laughs> nobody knew who you were before. You were slow and steady and probably doing good work, but nobody was like thinking about you. And then suddenly, you know, Marvel's like, you're the new Iron Man or something. Right. And then everybody's talking about you. Right. Um, so so that's kind of what happened with COVID. And, and with good reason, because it was so uniquely suited for this pandemic to, like, address what some of the concerns were, which was 
you had people sheltering in place, but you still needed to get them care. You do that through telehealth. You can reach in, but still minimize exposure for both the patient and the healthcare provider. Why you saw so many telehealth policy, like temporary waivers or guidances of doing that was because those old policies were still in place that limited the use of telehealth. That's why CMS had to like do so many changes is because they hadn't kept pace with what the technology could do. The policies were outdated. So both on the federal and state level, you saw so many changes. The states kind of varied. There were some states that were a little bit more advanced and had to do laps. And then there were other states that, you know, had not done as much with telehealth and they had to do more. For sure. So when you talk about sort of these wide sweeping policy changes that have happened as a result of COVID, um, can you just give some top line examples of changes to Medicare, Medicaid, HIPAA that America has been seeing? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones and one of the things that needed to to be changed to in the COVID era was a lot of the policies, the Medicare and Medicaid policies and probably some commercial payers, they didn't allow the patient to be at home and receive services at home. Well, that was kind of one of the major points <laughs> during mm-hmm. COVID, everybody was staying at home. So that had to be changed. It's like, you know, where the patient was located and the home was a major sin. Um, another thing that had been changed was the type of provider providing services. A lot of Medicare and a lot of Medicaid programs limited to, you know, what type of healthcare provider could provide the service via telehealth and get paid for it. Medicare has a very short list. It's like about eight or nine providers that they allow. That had to be expanded because providers that weren't on that list were some of your, you know, allied health professionals like OTs and PTs, speech pathologists. They're not on that list. So that needed to be expanded as well. And and also types of services that are, are covered too. So again, with like a Medicare example, they limited to very specific list of services and they go by, I, I don't know if your, your, your audience might be familiar with this, but how healthcare professionals usually bill is they do something, they do it by a code that is for a specific service. It has a definition of what type of services it is and it has like a code number to it and that's how they get paid. They build that to the payer who, you know, says, okay, you provided this service, we pay you this amount because that's associated with that code. So it's not that CMS says like, oh, we'll pay for, um, you know, all um, services associated with, you know, treating a skin rash. No, they they don't say that. They said, we'll pay for these specific codes. So Medicare definitely had like a specific list and some Medicaid programs did too. So they had to expand that because you know, there were other services that they were hoping could be provided via telehealth to people who were sheltering in place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and how do you think that this has differed, uh, the policy changes have differed between people who are publicly insured versus people who are privately insured? And uh, you have these sort of private insurers doing voluntary changes to their policies. Yeah, so it's a little. It's been a little bit more difficult to get a handle on what exactly all the private insurers are doing. So even even before COVID, it was difficult to understand what they were doing with their telehealth policies. And part of that was because, unlike Medicare and Medicaid, they don't necessarily make it public. I mean, they. I've I've seen health plans come out. Commercial payers said like, "Oh, we're going to cover telehealth services." It's like well, what does that mean? Does that mean like every service you cover 
you can do it via telehealth or do you mean it's like this sort of like narrow band of services it, and it hasn't been clear i'm not saying all payers but it hasn't been clear like you know um, what some of the payers are covering when they say I cover telehealth so it, 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 it's a little harder to judge like how expansive their telehealth policies and coverage have been because simply they haven't made all the details publicly accessible for us Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been sort of nebulous even for me just trying to learn about the different changes that they've made. So I think I've experienced that. Um, yeah. I'll give you like a very firm example here. So, for example, Medicare has said you can use phone to deliver a service. And, they say, and it's for these types of services. And they'll say like, you know, very specific codes or something. But they also have like a category which they call virtual check-in services, which is what it sounds like, like a quick check-in, that Medicare doesn't classify as telehealth. They classify as a technology-enabled service, so that's like a whole in-the-weeds type of discussion. But you can use phone to deliver that, so that's what Medicare does when you're using phone to deliver services, he has said. You can use these specific things to deliver service, and you can deliver these virtual check-in services, and that's what make phone, makes phone um, a way of delivering a service and you can, you healthcare provider can get paid for it. A health plan may also say like, we allow phone to be that, to be a way of delivering services too, but they may mean, we only mean those virtual check-in services and not necessarily like these other band of services um, that you would typically think of like, you know, oh, an office consultation or, you know, um, a mental health type of uh, interaction perhaps. Um, so that's that's been also one of the confusions there. It's just like how extensive are those policies and do they mean the same thing of like what people may be thinking because they've seen like the Medicare policies. Right, yeah, I think that's a really clarifying example. Um, so in a recent interview, CMS Administrator Seema Verma said that, quote, the genie is out of the bottle in regards to telehealth. Do you think that a lot of these policy changes are here to stay? I think some of them will be. Um, which ones? Not quite sure. I can like kind of guess which ones I think probably have the best chance of sticking around. Um, other ones that I, I think probably will not stick around. You had mentioned HIPAA earlier. Some of the rollback on HIPAA. I don't think those will stick around. For example. Um, Why is that? For uh, for one thing, again, the, basically the rollback on HIPAA was essentially the Office of Civil Rights saying like we're not going to fine you for a HIPAA violation. I don't think that's going to stick around. Now, the, the question is, though, does HIPAA right now has nothing specific related to telehealth? So there's there's no specific policy within HIPAA that focuses in on telehealth. Now, the question is, like, does that open up a discussion for policymakers to say, we need to update HIPAA because now we have telehealth. We need to, like, you know, figure out what the policy is for that. But the fact that, you know, they gave this grace period of not doing um, – you know, finding people, I, I don't think will stick around because they they want people to go back to like protecting health information and, and like abiding by those rules. They understood right now is emergency period, but once the emergency is over, I just see that rolling back to what it was before. But the conversation may be open if like we need to really update HIPAA to include this technology that really wasn't widely available beforehand when we, we did HIPAA. So we need to kind of update it. Again, policy trending a little bit behind technology. Um, but I do think some of the changes, some of the temporary wa waivers will stick around. I do know 
I've gotten questions both on the federal and the state level of like, we're discussing this on what to keep. And some of them probably have a better chance than others simply because of um, maybe, so for the federal ones, a lot of the, the barriers were actually statutory barriers. So it would require Congress to pass a bill and the president to sign it. But there are some things that CMS can do administratively and decide on their own to keep around. So those would be kind of like easier things to do if they wish to keep that policy around because they wouldn't have to go through Congress. Um, so those I kind of rate as having a higher likelihood of sticking around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one historical barrier to telehealth has been licensing restrictions, sort of leading many states to join into interstate compacts. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course, there's been the issuance of uh, Section 1115 waivers, allowing many doctors who are licensed in one state to practice outside of their state. Uh, Do you anticipate that these licensing regulations will stick around um, or change after America fully reopens? I think the licensing issue will become a much more discussed topic than it was, I mean, even before COVID, it was kind of like one of the major barriers identified. It was like, you know, talked about a lot. I think the discussion will be ratcheted up um, once we get past the immediate emergency and that you may actually hear policymakers more interested in doing something about it than they were. Like, you know, like I said, it was always like a a topic of discussion. Um, Sometimes you had policymakers who were like, resistant to it, I'll you know, use California as an example. California um, is actually not a member of any licensure compact, so there's just been sort of very strong resistance to, to joining them, but I think probably that some of that resistance from policymakers may have softened in like discussing like the licensing issue or even like have their interest increased, and the reason I say that is because I think more during this pandemic have become aware that this is a significant issue. And I think part of it may be they've either had like firsthand experience with it or somebody that they know have had firsthand experience with it. Um, I'll give you an example. I got a policymaker who contacted me and said, is this true? I have a colleague whose college student daughter can't come home because the university is shut down. She can't access her student health provider who she was seeing before this all hit because it's a different state now. Why can't that provider provide that service here into into the state? (laughs) I'll keep it anonymous here. And it's like, um, I said, well, because there's, there was like no specific waiver for that to provide that service. So yeah, licensure is like buried. And that sparked an interest in that policymaker saying like, wait, are you telling me this this can't happen because of this licensure issue and this is from somebody who I know and had not expressed an interest in the subject before and I think we'll probably find like a lot of policymakers who maybe have that first-hand experience in some way or are hearing about it from constituents or from friends relatives their own staff because it's impacted so many people not only like the college students but maybe if somebody you know got stuck in a state and they can't travel I, again, I got like a another call just a few days ago from like a national organization saying somebody reached out to us. It's it's a woman who had cystic fibrosis who was in one state, but her um, 
doctors were in another state and the doctors couldn't like provide the services over telehealth. I said, I'm sorry, it's the licensure issue. So obviously there's a pretty large disparity between the way that different states carry out telehealth and the policies that they have in place. Do you think there are any states that serve as a good example of something that could lay groundwork for widespread adoption? Yeah, I mean, um, if you're talking about like their Medicaid policies, um, California actually is a pretty good example of their Medicaid policies. So ironically, before COVID hit, California had just updated and expanded their Medicaid telehealth policies. So they had, they still had stuff to do during COVID to, to like expand it, but they actually had less than what a lot of other states had to do. So, um, so California for Medicaid policies has, you know, like really, really forward thinking types of policies in Medicaid. Um, for commercial payers, it depends on what type of statute they have in place. And, you know, um, uh, California, is one of the states that updated them. There are a couple other states that have, like, you know, more explicit policies on what commercial payers are just supposed to do. Um, Hawaii, Minnesota, they've got, like, pretty expansive commercial payer policies. So it, it, it kind of really depends on, you know, what you're trying to do. But in general, those are kind of the states in the areas, in those specific areas, like with Medicaid or the commercial payer laws and what they need to do. Now, uh, the caveat with the commercial payer laws, it's really important how they've written them, and it's also really important in like how it carries, how it's carried out. So, the majority of these laws and how they're written, if if like a health plan, there there could be some sort of um, ability for the health plans to interpret it a certain way. It, so the, the law would have to be written pretty, you know clearly and like what they're requiring of the health plan and then also none of these laws in place actually have any type of you know punishment I guess the word is punishment punishment on if like a health plan doesn't abide by it it says like health plan you need to do this but there's there's never like listed a consequence and like if if they don't follow it um so there, there we have encountered you know conversations with providers where you know they said like I, I try to do this with my health plan, and, and you know, then telehealth. The health plan has told me no. The commercial plan has told me no. Um, it's one or two things. It's like you know, well, how how much, how well was the law written in the first place? There may be like a lot of flexibility in there for a health plan and how they interpret it. So they may not, they may be able to legally not cover the service that you're trying to offer via telehealth. Um, and then also, um, yeah, if they're not abiding by what's in the law, if it looks like you know they're not abiding by it, you know you're going to have to make a complaint to like whatever authority sort of you know regulates them in the state, and then see what happens with there. And that's been kind of rare of, of people. I'm not sure if I like, heard a lot of people making a complaint. There was I'm trying to think what state it was. It was one of the Midwest states where it was the first time. It was about a year ago where it was the first time that we did hear a state agency fine a health plan for not following the telehealth law. And that's been like kind of, it's been about a year, a year and a half ago. I'm trying to remember which Midwest state it was. Hmm. Oklahoma maybe, but they did <laughs> find the plan and the plan said it was, it was because we just didn't get our system in place because the law had passed too recently for us to get it in place. But that was the first time I had heard of like, you know, a state action 
enforcing like a private payer law. Mm-hmm. Did you hear any? Uh, did you hear any other states bring it up after that, or was it sort of an isolated incident? It was isolated as far as I know. I had not heard of any other states. I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll have to look back to see which state it was. And they find them like you know about like one hundred fifty thousand dollars or something. And you know, the plan was like, we'll pay it. Sorry, we just just get our systems up and running mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did want to talk a little bit about you know anticipating problems that are coming out of, as a result of new policies or, uh, you know, some fears that people have about rolling out telehealth. Um, and telehealth providers can now waive patient deductibles and copayments during the emergency. Um, but I, if I'm correct, under normal circumstances, these actions would be interpreted as kickbacks. Um, uh-huh. Some feel that maybe lowering these barriers could cause a wave of billing fraud to CMS, um, and I'm wondering, do you think that that's going to be a substantial problem, and if so, what can be done to kind of mitigate it? So, I mean, there there is probably, you know, obviously there is that concern, like, during this time, like, when you, when you say, like, when you remove the guardrails, you know, you can, like, just go wild or something. Somebody's going to go wild, and it's mm-hmm. it's understandable to have that concern because yeah. we're human beings, and you know you're you're you're, you're going to have probably the odds are you're probably going to have one bad apple at least right. doing doing something. So I can understand the the concerns regarding that. Um, will that happen? I don't I I don't know. Uh, part of it has been that historically um, there hasn't been. A lot of fraud related to telehealth. Now I know in like recent years there's been like some news, news, big news things of like oh you know uh, arrested you know 60 people and related to uh, telehealth fraud for Medicare or something like that. That's been in in recent news, but a lot of that where where they describe it and like you know those cases, it's like that's kind of a what you see in like typical fraud cases, and it was sort of like. You know, oh, you 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 were prescribing unnecessary prescriptions for people who didn't even like need them and didn't even realize you were doing them because you you, you signed them on for like whatever reason. It's like, well, that's kind of like what you were always, you know, what fraudsters were always doing. You just happen to have had a telehealth element this time. It's not necessarily did it make it easier for you or was that like the the technology's fault? It was like basically I'm just saying it was a scam that was always in existence. Right. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like a telehealth thing, but it was something that you know people had been doing probably since when you know Medicare program was available, and they figured out a way to like you know do that. Um, so with like removing this, are we going to see that? I mean, I'll be honest, just again because we're human beings, and the the fact that you know the odds are you likely will have a bad actor, I would not be surprised. Um, if there was some, you know, when they like when it all comes down to it, and they look at it. But I would say probably the majority are legitimate reasons for billing Medicare. They are providing services to the people who need it, and they are doing everything correctly. Um, one thing, you know, that they would still need to do is like there is they would still need to bill properly in order to get paid for for telehealth so it's still the same thing of like you know if they were providing services a person they would still need to be billing properly in order to get paid um when it all comes down to it when we're past this 
this pandemic, it will be interesting to see, like, you know, what the data is. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say like there, there's, no, of course, there's not going to be any fraud. It's like, even, even with the guardrails in place, you still have some fraud because right. we're human beings. Yeah. And if somebody wants to do it, they're going to find a way to do it. So, right. I mean, it, it, the, the, the best you can do is, I mean, the best you can do is like you just still hope that the people who that this what this does is is that it does open it up so you can get the services to the people who need it and it's legitimate and you know that the provider will get paid for their efforts in doing that providing services to those those folks um, and I think that is probably what they'll find is like that's what the majority has of of services that are being built in Medicare that is what is happening right. Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure in, in my experience, and I'm sure in yours as well, there's sort of an inevitable, an inevitable level of trying to game the system anytime a new policy is rolled out. Um, so sort of piggybacking on, you mentioned sort of billing proper, uh, properly. I just want to ask quickly about reimbursement rates for healthcare providers, which it seems that there's been some confusion in how state Medicaids are going to do that. And maybe there's been some uneven uh, reimbursement rates. Doctors not getting paid exactly what they anticipated they would be paid. Um, have you seen this as a major problem? And are there ways to sort of more efficiently roll out these new rates? So Medicare and Medicaid, for the most part, it should still be the same rate as in person. Where I think probably some of the problem has been is going back to our phone example where I was talking about like the virtual checking codes that CMS and Medicare doesn't consider telehealth, but it uses telehealth technology or technology to provide the service. That's gotten murky and confused in a lot of people's minds. So, so Medicare, what it does, it has essentially two buckets. It's their telehealth bucket where they said, this service is provided via telehealth. These are the things that we reimburse, blah, blah, blah. They have like all their policies around it. Then they have another bucket of something that they call technology-enabled or communication-based services, which use telehealth technologies, but they don't call it telehealth, um, primarily because they said there's telehealth is considered sort of an imp, a replacement for the in-person service. So it's like a one-to-one -one replacement for something that you would have gotten in person. Whereas they said, but we have the, the technology now that can provide these services that we don't necessarily have a one-to-one -one matchup. So it's like this completely different bucket of things. So those technology-enabled services aren't underneath the same restrictions that telehealth has. CMS has set up other restrictions, but if they don't have the telehealth restrictions and they're not regarded as telehealth. I think the two buckets have kind of merged in a lot of people's minds, and it's gotten kind of like, mixed up where they think, oh, that's telehealth, those technology-enabled services. They said, it's not treated that way by the program, though, in how they, how you bill, what code you use, what you get paid for, the amount you get paid for. That's CMS and Medicare. What you have to understand with Medicaid is that some of them have adopted those codes, too, and they adopted that separation as well. So you have that confusion going around. But in some providers' mind, they mix it up into, it's all telehealth. So the reason I go through that explanation is that some of those technology-enabled services pay a lot less than what you would get for like a telehealth-delivered service because the telehealth-delivered service is considered a replacement for in-person. 
so you get paid the same amount. Let's go back to our phone example, and this is an, an this is something I have heard specifically from doctors where they said I use telehealth and I only got paid ten dollars. I dig a little deeper and like why they only got paid ten dollars, and what they've done is they did a service over the phone, and they were told by let's say a commercial payer to build a specific code. The code that they built is a virtual check-in code, which is that you know quick check-in that does pay $10. So while the provider was thinking, well, I was doing an office consultation, I usually get paid, I don't know, whatever it is, $100, let's say, $100. But I did this consultation with this patient and I only got paid 10 Telehealth paid much less. I'm like, no, you just coded it wrong you've coded it as a virtual check-in code. And they may have been doing that, again, going back to policies, because they may have been told by the commercial payers, like, if you do phone, this is the code that you use. And it's a virtual check-in code as opposed to, like, you know, the regular code that they would use if they did an office consultation. hope that made sense. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, are there ways that doctors can kind of... Um doctors or the average person can get a little more familiarized with these billing codes. And if they are having this issue, what kind of channels would they go through to um, figure out the root of the problem? Yeah, I mean, it is like billing is like this whole other world that's very complicated. Um, I mean, there are courses and courses on it just to understand how to bill Medicare. And then you add this other layer of telehealth and it gets even more complicated. So part of it is, is, is usually sending like, you know, a question into the telehealth resource centers, which CCHP is one of them. And we, um, you know, try to like, you know, sort through the problem of what they are doing. Um, the other one is like having that kind of, you know, understanding of like what the policies are for who you're billing. And as, and as I said, the Medicare and Medicaid ones, they're usually pretty good about being very clear of like, you know, what codes were they're billing for, um, and they fill the system so you know, like, you know, kind of if you're doing something, do you fit into the definition for one of those codes and you know to build that. Um, commercial payers, again, that's like a little bit more difficult. It's like, you know, it's been difficult to get your hands on their policies, at least from like an outsider viewpoint. It may be a little bit easier, maybe, if you are like a, a provider within their network, I, I would assume that you would have the ability to get like their policies because you're the network provider so you can ask them for it um but like ask the commercial payer of like i'm in your network i don't want to use telehealth what are the policies how do i build for it what do you cover and get that information from them um but it is like a very difficult landscape to navigate and that's actually been one of the biggest issues that i've been hearing from providers uh during this time of like you know, this is like so complicated. I have like a mix of, of patients. I have Medicare patients, I have Medicaid patients, and I have commercial patients, and they all tell me how to build for telehealth differently. Like, that is true. They all have different ways and how they want a provider to bill, and it is extremely confusing. And then like a consumer, for them to like try to understand like, well, what can I get through telehealth? What can't be covered? It's going to vary for them. It, it is confusing for them and, and as well. Um, and the, the options to, like, where they can get information is, is you know, it varies. Um, they can ask, like, you know, their health plan, just, like, you know, specifically, like, what can, what services via telehealth, you know, will be covered. Ask them what they cover. If they get uh, 
services via um, their employer, maybe with their HR department, uh, ask them about that. The, the resources coming out on that specificity for what's available to consumers are very small from the, from the government. California is one of the few. They recently set up a consumer portal where they can get some basic information about telehealth and then type in their zip code and it'll bring up like all the health plans that cover, that say that they cover telehealth delivered services and then like a link to to that health plan's website that explains a little bit more and, and that kind of varies because then you they send them to the health plan site and that the available information varies from plan to plan. Some may be more explicit in what they cover and others may not be. But that is sort of like one of the few sort of government resources out there where I've seen, you know, a state or the federal government putting something in to like give more information to the consumer. Um, the feds, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, they also put out a website that did have some information for um, patients of like, you know, about telehealth and more educational information on there. So that was good as well. But those are the only two examples where of like, you know, You've, you've seen the government put in some type of resources to educate the consumer. It's like kind of few and far between, and that was only during mm-hmm. when COVID hit, so nothing really existed pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, we CCHP tried to put out as much information for consumers, so basic things such as like, well, what is telehealth? Explain it to them, you know, and some of the, the things for them to be aware of. The telehealth resource centers have been trying to do that as well, but that is kind of like an area where, you know, the consumer probably relies more on, and if they have one, the primary care provider, a primary care provider to tell them about it, or like their health plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for sure. Well, this conversation has been really illuminating for me, so thank you. Um, I think that I've covered all of my questions. I did have one last thing for you, though. If our listeners are interested in learning more about telehealth, what kind of resources does CCHP recommend? So um, if they want to get into the policies, they can definitely come to the CCHP website. Uh, We track all of the state Medicaid policies, the Medicare policies, laws and regulations in the state and on the federal level as well. Plus, we have a special section that devoted to like all the policy changes of COVID, but you know, that can get kind of dense for some people. It is the policy stuff. Um, the telehealth resource centers, again, there's a central website that we have telehealthresourcecenter.org, um, where you can access or find connections to like all 14 of them, but there's some general information on there as well. Um, you know, also, so those are kind of like the two that I would say are, are really kind of like your best places to start. Uh, and, and it depends on the type of you know person you are, if you're a provider, if you're a consumer. Um, there's been like a lot of interest in in telehealth by a lot of different groups. So depending on where your audience members fall, like if they're a senior, you know, AARP has done a lot with telehealth, but let's say, you know, they are um, you know, more interested in like, you know, kids and student health, there's like a lot of organ- different organizations that have also, um, you know, focused in on telehealth as well, such as, you know, the school-based health alliance, they focus in on telehealth and like having it in the schools. So there's like a, there's, it's also going to depend. I would start with the telehealth resource centers 
um, CCHP, especially if you're interested in the policy end, and like, you know, work from there. I would also say feel free to reach out to a telehealth resource centers and just ask your questions, such as like, hey, I'm interested in, you know, um, uh, cystic fibrosis and the use of telehealth. Where are some good resources that I can go to? And we all talk with each other, all 14 of us. We work very collaboratively together. So I like to say if like one of them can't answer your question, they usually ask the other 13 and somebody typically has an answer. So. I would, I would say start there. That's a good starting point. And then, you know, we'll be able to, like, you know, narrow it down on what your specific sort of issue or question is. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Centering on Coronavirus from the New Center. Please be sure to visit us at newcenter.org to sign up for our updates and stay tuned for another episode next week. <laughs>